All right, welcome back to another episode of Credal Catholic. Today we are continuing our five-part series on TULIP, and today is the third of the five. Today we're talking about limited atonement, and I'm joined, as always, on these episodes by my friend Casey Chalk. Casey, how are you this evening? Doing very well. Thank you very much for having me, Zach. Yeah, no, I'm excited to dive into limited atonement. This is a a, a big topic. I think we're going to try to wrap it up in 30 minutes or less and try to explain the contours of the debate here between Protestants and uh, Reformed Protestants and Catholics. I think maybe at the outset, Casey, it's worth mentioning that as as you and I have discussed this quite a bit over the past couple of weeks, it seems like there is perhaps the most consensus on this topic between Catholics and Reformed Protestants um, uh the most most consensus on this one versus all of the other aspects of TULIP. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. Um, not only the most consensus between Calvinists and Catholics, but also counterintuitively, I would argue the doctrine that's most under, misunderstood by Catholics. Um, so as we're going to see going forward, that much of the disagreement between Calvinists and Catholics amounts to a disagreement over emphasis, though there is still a narrower essential difference between the two paradigms. Yeah, I completely agree. Let's let's dive into that. Uh, we normally start with the Piper and Sproul uh, summations, but uh, let's instead today start with the uh, Westminster Confession and the Synod of Dort. So I'll let you walk us through that. Sure. So Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 5, teaches, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. The next uh, quotation from early Reformation history is from the Synod of Dort. This is actually the uh, the Reformed Council that responded to the uh, theologian Jacob Arminius that kind of crafted the TULIP acronym. So the Synod of Dort Council reads, It was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those, and those only, who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father. All right, perfect. So the uh, the too long didn't read of those is that the atonement of Jesus is for those who are saved, right? That's right. All right, so let me read the Piper, the John Piper and R.C. Sproul summations here. And I think the, the I'll read the Piper one last, actually, because there's some parallels that I think we can draw between what John Piper says about this and actually what St. Thomas Aquinas says. So first, let's go with R.C. Sproul. And we know that R.C. Sproul likes to to kind of reassign terms to the, the aspects of TULIP. So he says, I prefer not to use the term limited atonement because it is misleading. I rather speak of definite redemption or a definite atonement, which communicates that God the Father designed the work of redemption specifically with a view to providing salvation for the elect. And that Christ died for his sheep and laid down his life for those the Father had given to him. The redemption of specific sinners was an eternal plan of God, and this plan and design was perfectly conceived and perfectly executed so that the will of God to save his people is accomplished by the atoning work of Christ. All right, so the the work of redemption was designed specifically uh, with a view with a view to providing salvation for the elect. Okay. We once we're done with this, we should probably recreate the acronym for TULIP according to Sproul and see <laughs> we, what it is. Yeah, see see what it spells out. It might spell out something something fun. Um, <laughs> all right, John Piper says, and this is the this is the point where I want to draw a parallel between Piper and and uh, the angelic doctor. So I'll let you do that after I read this Piper quote, Casey. But John Piper says the atonement of Christ is sufficient for all humans and effective for those who trust Him. It is not limited in its worth or sufficiency to save all who believe, 
but the full saving effectiveness of the atonement that Jesus accomplished is limited to those for whom that saving effect was prepared. The availability of the total sufficiency of the atonement is for all people. Whosoever will, whoever believes, will be covered by the blood of Christ. And there is a divine design in the death of Christ to accomplish the promises of the new covenant for the chosen bride of Christ. Thus Christ died for all people, but not for all in the same way. And before you go, you read that quote from St. Thomas, Casey, I just want to point out this difference between sufficiency and efficiency. Um, a work is efficient or a grace is efficient if it achieves the end for which it is designed. And so efficient grace is that which saves because it leads to salvation. Um, the contention here from Piper is that the atonement of Christ is sufficient for everyone. That is, you know, it, it does in, it does mediate sort of the beginning point of grace for everyone. The reason is that God is not limited by his abilities. And so the, the atonement of Christ, actually in the words of St. Thomas Aquinas, one, one drop of blood is enough to atone for the sins of the whole world. So it's not a question of how limited Christ's atonement was in its sufficiency. The contention from the Reformed Protestant perspective is that um, it is limited in its efficiency, that it is uh, basically only efficient for salvation, that it only achieves the work of salvation in the elect. Um, and when you when we read that Piper quote, we find that it's actually not too different in terminology from what Thomas Aquinas and others in the Catholic tradition have said. That's right. So from uh, Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, uh, book three, we read, Christ's passion was not only a sufficient, but a superabundant atonement for the sins of the human race. According to 1 John 2.2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And then again in his commentary on Titus, Aquinas says, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, efficaciously for some, but sufficiently for all, because the price of his blood is sufficient for the salvation of all, but it has its effect only in the elect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so when we read that, uh, Aquinas doesn't really sound all that different from what um, the reform documents, or like you said, particularly um, what Piper uh, seems to be saying uh, in the quotation that you read. Yeah. Now, at the outset of this series, Casey, you mentioned that there's significant disagreement even within reform Protestant circles and reform Protestantism is not a monolith. So I've seen significant criticism levied at Piper, for example, from folks who say, uh, you know, we are we are hardcore monergists in the tradition of the reformers and Piper doesn't emphasize monergism enough. That is that God is the only one who acts. Um, and you might see some of that in Piper's quote here, where I read that um, whosoever will, whoever believes will be covered by the blood of Christ. That, that might kind of offend the sensibilities of the monergists. But I think your point, Casey, or the point that, that is emphasized by your quote there from Thomas Aquinas is that the language is the same here. Aquinas talks about how the atonement is sufficient, indeed super abundant, which is a word I love because I just picture this like, cup just overflowing with graces, right? The atonement of Christ is super abundant for all of humanity, but it is efficient. That is, it has its effect only in the elect. So there's a lot of overlap and, um, and you dug up some, in, in your research, you dug up some, uh, some quotes from R.C. Sproul that talk about its overlap a little bit. And I'll ask you about that in just a sec. But, but one thing that I just want to point out is there's certainly overlap, but there's a difference in emphasis. And then as we said at the outset, there's a uh, there's a kind of nuance to what we mean by the elect and the elect, the election of the elect. Um, and that's something that we talked about in the U uh, last week, unconditional election. But let's talk about R.C. Sproul emphasizing some of these commonalities, Casey. 
Sure. So uh, Sproul says, I think this is in um, his like a sun, uh, his book, A Hundred Essential Doctrines. Anyone who is not a universalist is willing to agree that the effect of Christ's work on the cross is limited to those who believe. That is, Christ's atonement does not avail for unbelievers. Not everyone is saved through his death. Everyone also agrees that the merits of Christ's death is sufficient to pay for the sins of all human beings. Some put it this way, Christ's atonement is sufficient for all, but efficient for some. So yeah, again, sounds very similar to Aquinas. And then uh, Robert Louis Dabney, who was one of the most influential uh, Reformed theologians in the 19th century, at least certainly in America, and also the founder of University of Texas Philosophy Department, in his uh, The Five Points of Calvinism says, Christ's expiation is indivisible, inexhaustible, sufficient in itself to cover the guilt of all the sins that will be uh, ever be committed on earth. Um, yeah, so, so tons of tons yeah. of agreement there on the superabundance. Um, right. And I really like R.C. Sproul's point too, right? Unless you're a universalist, you're going to acknowledge that the grace of the atonement, the grace of Christ's atonement is not efficient for everyone, right? Now that's a totally different question of its sufficiency. Everyone is, everyone's agreeing here that we've read there. Might, I mean, there might be some fringe elements out there that disagree with, you know, deny the sufficiency. Uh, I think if you deny the sufficiency of the atonement, you're probably just an apostate at that point. But if you, if you're not, not a universalist, you are at least going to have to acknowledge the limit of the efficiency. That is that not everyone is saved. So the, the work that Jesus does on the cross does not actually bring about its end in everybody. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. So Dabney kind of helps us get to the, the crux of the matter here. Right. So he says the question will be pressed. Is Christ's sacrifice limited by the purpose and design of the Trinity? The best answer for Presbyterians to make is this. In the purpose and design of the Godhead, Christ's sacrifice was intended to affect just the results and all the results, which would be found flowing from it in the history of redemption. Um, so there, you know, Dabney is is pointing us to the, the major distinction here, I, I would argue, between Catholics and Reformed, which is that um, in the Reformed paradigm, there, there's no real sense that God ever intended uh, the salvation to be for all people. Um, and yeah, and, Sproul, and sorry, I, I think I, I just want to dwell on that for just a moment, because that to me is the crucial distinction here, right? No one, no one disagrees on the limited efficiency. No one disagrees on the unlimited sufficiency, but what we do disagree on is whether or not God truly intends to draw all people to himself. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, and Sproul kind of reiterates this point from Dabney. He says, those who deny definite atonement insist that Christ's work of atonement was designed by God to atone for the sins of everyone in the world. It made possible the salvation of everyone, but made certain the salvation of no one. Its design is therefore unlimited and indefinite. The reform view holds that Christ's atonement was designed and intended only for the elect. Um, so then Sproul goes on to explain that reform thinkers differ on whether or not the offer of the atonement is made to the entire human race or only the elect. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, I think that's exactly right. And the Catholic position, of course, is that it's offered to everyone. Now, our position is not universalist, so we acknowledge that not everyone is saved. But the it's a dogma of the church that God does intend indeed to save everyone, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, so Sproul is getting to the heart of the matter, which is the manner and the degree of the ato uh, atonement. Uh, to what degree is it is it limited? Um, so, uh, 
you know, Catholics would cite verses like Second Peter three nine to substantiate this idea that Christ intended to die for the whole world, right? So uh, there we read, "The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." Um, and uh, to quote, to talk about uh, Catholic apologist Jimmy Aiken, he also acknowledges like the proximity between the Catholic and Calvinist uh, positions on limited atonement. He says, one may say that although the sufficiency of the atonement is not limited, its efficiency is limited. This is something everyone who believes in hell must acknowledge. Like, so he's again, sounds a lot like uh, Sproul. Because if the atonement was made efficacious for everyone, then no one would end up in hell. A Catholic also may say that in going to the cross, Christ intended to make salvation possible for all men, but he did not intend to make salvation actual for all men. Otherwise, we would have to say that Christ went to the cross intending that all men would end up in heaven. While a Catholic could not say that the atonement was limited in that it was made only for the elect, he could say that the atonement was limited in that God only intended it to be efficacious for the elect, although he intended it to be sufficient for all. I think that's a great summation of the you know the the catholic distinction yeah exactly and i think um you know there's a there's another key part of this that we need to point to and it goes to the unconditional election piece as well we were talking about that last week but one of the reasons that the protestant reformers developed the doctrine of um, unconditional election is the fact that they said uh well i mean there's the fact that god is sovereign of course but they basically God, they, they said God, God brings about what he intends to accomplish. Right. Cause if right. he's, if he's not, then, then he's not sovereign. If he's not bringing about what he intends to accomplish then he's not sovereign. Um, and so that's why they emphasize that if God does indeed predestine you, then you will be saved, right? The, the grace, the, the uh, grace of Christ's atonement will be efficient for you. It will bring about its work in you. The Catholic position um, is different. And there's there's subtlety here, and I think we'll save most of this discussion for next week when we talk about irresistible grace. There's a there's a unique Catholic debate on this that came about like 40 years after um, the Council of Trent. But um, the Catholic position, generally speaking, allows for a, a much greater, more holistic conception of the human will. Free will always features very prominently in the discussions uh, about soteriology and how man is saved. And so the Catholic would say that even if God intends to save you, the fact that you're not saved is not a reflection of God's um, inability to save you, but rather a reflection of your refusal to cooperate with the grace that God gives you that is ordered to salvation. That's exactly right. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the scriptural support cited perhaps by both sides uh, in this debate, Casey. Uh, and, and I say debate uh, because there is disagreement on limited atonement, uh, even if we agree on sufficiency and efficiency concepts. Sure. So um, the, the proof texts that are cited by both camp, camps kind of represent the, dif- the difference in emphasis. So Protestants are going to cite verses that uh, talk about Jesus' atoning sacrifice sacrifice being only for those who are his own or believe in him. So for example, John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep or John 17, nine. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. I pray for them, which thou hast given me for they are thine or John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
In Matthew 121, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Um, Catholics, in contrast, are going to cite verses that talk about Christ dying for all or for the world. Um, do you want to read some of those, Zach? Yeah, sure. So the first one that comes to mind is First John 2.2. 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, now that could be interpreted in a, in a sufficiency or efficiency context. I think um, it makes the most sense to interpret it in a sufficiency context. This is the super abundance that Thomas Aquinas is talking about. Christ's sacrifice is indeed the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, and it can cover the sins of the whole world. Second uh, Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 1 Timothy 2.6, Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think that is maybe one of the strongest of the ones that I just read, Casey, because that speaks to the intention of God in the economy of salvation. Does God indeed intend to save everyone? Does God does God truly hate nothing that he has made, as scripture also tells us? And does he want to save all of us? Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And there is another one um, also from Second Peter that reflects um, uh, the Catholic understanding regarding the more narrow disagreement between the two sides where uh, Peter writes, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And this is the most important part, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So in other words, Christ in one sense, that of intention, died for those who even, even for those who rejected him. Now, this section about false teachers, is that talking about Reformed Protestants, do you think? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just feeling fiery tonight, Casey. All right. So those are some of the scriptural proof texts. I think um, it might be helpful for us to talk, since this is more difference of emphasis and then the fundamental question of what did Christ intend, it might be helpful for us to talk through some of the um, the ways that this works itself out practically uh, in, in practical theology, um, especially on the Reformed side. Yes. So, um, like we've talked about, there isn't really a lot of daylight um, between these two views. Um, so many people might wonder then, well, these theological differences are so nuanced and subtle, what's the big deal? Um, I, I would argue that it, that it can make a, be a significant difference. Um, but what, one of the things I want to talk about first, that in preparing for our conversation uh, today, that I happened upon an article by a prominent Catholic apologist, uh, Tim Staples, who uh, works for Catholic Answers, and he was talking about this particular debate on a limited atonement. Now, granted, I, I think t- Tim Staples is great. I've read some of his books. Um, they've been very helpful for me. I think he does fantastic work in Catholic apologetics. But I was a little shocked when I, when I read the beginning of the article because he says, when it comes to the atonement of Christ, Scripture is remarkably clear. Uh, that, that should ring alarm bells just because he's kind of presuming the doctrine of perspicuity. But so he goes on, Jesus Christ died on the cross for the entire world. The redemption that Christ merited through his passion and death was for every single human person who has ever and will ever live. The Calvinist teaching of limited atonement denies this simple truth. Um, so, well, the problem is, is that as we've, as we've proved in this conversation, um, no less than Piper, R.C. Sproul, and Dabney, all Calvinists, in one sense, don't actually deny that 
Christ died for all, right? It's this sufficient and efficient uh, dichotomy uh, that, that they are willing to affirm in a certain sense. Um, so uh, even some Calvinists, as Sproul notes, believe that the offer of Christ's atonement is for the whole world. Um, so we've noted that the distinction has to do with God's intent in the atonement. Um, and that, yeah, that is a bit more of a fine distinction. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think it's important, too, that you brought up that um, Tim Staples thing. I mean, one of the reasons that I think Catholics and Protestants talk past each other is because we can't genuinely engage with each other's arguments. And I think it speaks to the importance of doing just that. I mean, especially if we Catholics are confident in our answers, we should be confident in engaging the best arguments of those who oppose us. Uh, and that would that would mean actually taking their words at face value and not uh, not making them more simple than they actually are, not reducing the arguments, not setting up straw men, but actually engaging uh, the ideas as they are. Um, and I think we should be confident of that because we do have the truth. Yeah, well, one of the um, fundamental tenets of, I think, uh, productive ecumenical dialogue. And this is, again, something that uh, Brian Cross, who I've mentioned before, a great Catholic apologist and philosopher, um, one of the things that he taught me is that you know, ecumen ecumenical dialogue depends on finding the consensus first, right? So we, we kind of need to get back down to where, where are we actually in agreement and then work from the disagreements. So I, yeah, I think that in some senses, maybe Staples kind of missed out on an opportunity to acknowledge how much consensus there actually is between the Reformed and Catholic uh, understandings of limit of atonement. Yeah, I think that's right. So, um, in your experience, what do you think as a former reformed Protestant, what do you think this does for evangelism? Because you talked about this, um, a little bit on the election point, but it strikes me that if you're really emphasizing the limited nature of the efficiency that could also hamper, uh, efforts at evangelization, right? I mean, apart from the, you might be of the elect, you might not, there's the whole, there's the whole question of like, why would I, why would I want to serve a God who does not desire that all of us be saved, right? Maybe he doesn't even desire that I be saved. I mean, that, that, I think that'd be my response if I was being, uh, being taught this, this uh, doctrine of reformed Protestantism while I was outside of the church. I think that's right. I think that's why a lot of um, Calvinists, when they do evangelism, this was certainly true of me when I was uh, trying to do evangelism as a, as a young life and then afterwards with other uh ministries that were, that were like more Calvinist in, uh, in their, in their doctrine was just to not really talk about this issue. Um, but so, you know, if a, if a Calvinist is adhering to the more particular shade of the doctrine that, that says that a person to whom you're speaking, you can't say Christ died for you because Christ doesn't necessarily die for everyone in any sense, right? He doesn't, God doesn't intend, uh, for the atonement to be offered to all people. Um, so the best that that Calvinist could do would be to say something like, Christ died for those he came to save. You, you may be one of them. Um, and uh, yeah, that, I, that's a bit bizarre, uh, especially in light of the verses that, uh, that I cited or we cited from the Testament, where uh, the New Testament writers are so willing and emphatic to say that Christ died for the world and for all. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember that, you know, as I went sort of moved from non-denominational evangelicalism into a you know, stronger, more robust Calvinism that I, I very much struggled with. How do I present the gospel in a way that's faithful to scripture and to the nuances of the reformed tradition? Yeah, that completely makes sense. Um, 
And I, I have to say that, I mean, this is another thing that I appreciate about the, the emphasis that the Catholic position places on things, right? There's a role in the Catholic tradition for, for accepting the grace of God. And I think that's abundantly important, especially in efforts at evangelism, right? Christ, Christ intends that you be saved. Um, but you need to accept his grace. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There is an offer. And so, yeah, there is an expectation. Well, and we'll talk about this later in, in uh, the talk, the conversation on irresistible, irresistible grace about free will and the, the different understandings of it in reforming Catholic uh, paradigms. Now, uh, you also had a point about sociocultural effects of this belief. So what is this, uh, how does that have trickle down effects from the reformed Protestants uh, paradigm? Sure. So this is similar to what I had said in the podcast we did on total depravity, um, that the Calvinist emphasis on the efficiency of the atonement reinforces this strong binary between the saved and the unsaved. So Jesus died for a very specific, uh, you could call them elite group of people, the elect, the invisible church. So that means that Christ's redemptive work has this very specific uh, exclusivist spiritual quality to it. Um, And I, I would argue that's pretty different from uh, the Catholic paradigm where the, with, because the emphasis is on the sufficiency of the atonement for all the world, it's more aggressive and bold in offering Christ to the world. And I mean, that's even, um, it's reflected in some of the language, even in, in the mass, um, about Christ's death for, for the entire world. So his death makes possible the salvation of all, not just the elect. Um, and yeah, so I think we see that in the sacramental life of the church, um, because in the sacraments, there's a mechanism whereby salvific grace that's won by Christ's atoning sacrifices, then communicated to all those who receive it in faith, and then can be spread uh, throughout the world. That the the grace itself uh, can be communicated out into the world. Yeah, that all makes sense, uh, and it's well said. Um, anything we missed on this point? I've got one thing I want to read. It's a little bit long. It's from um, Ludwig. It's Ludwig Ott's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. Uh, but anything to add before I read that, Casey? No, I want to hear Ott. Sure. So this is, uh, let me find the number here. Well, so I'm looking at my copy of the book. It's page 188. And the dogma is, it's twofold. Christ did not die for the predestined only. Christ died not for the faithful only, but for all mankind without exception. And then I love, I love Ott's just systematic approach to, to, you know, articulating these dogmas. He goes on to provide some historical context for this. And he says, in the year 1653, Pope Innocent X condemned as heretical the proposition that Christ died for the salvation of the predestined exclusively. And so that is more in line with the, uh, the position laid out by R.C. Sproul uh, in the beginning of this podcast when we read his quote on what it is, right? Um, Christ died for the elect. Uh, in the year 1690, Pope Alexander VIII rejected the assertion that Christ offered himself to God for the faithful only. The Council of Trent laid down, quote, Hence it was that the heavenly father sent his son to men that he might redeem the Jews who were under the law and that the Gentiles who followed not after justice might receive justice and that all might receive the adoption of sons. Him God hath proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood for our sins and not alone for ours, but for those of the whole world. So very clear here about the intention of God to save the whole world. Now, obviously, that is different from the efficiency of the atonement in, in, in its effects of saving the whole world. And uh, Ott continues, Holy Scripture clearly teaches the universality of the deed of redemption and with it indirectly the atonement of Christ. And uh, Ott actually quotes 1 John 2, 2 here. Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's one of the ones that we already mentioned. And he has a couple of other um, references here. 
uh, including First Timothy 2.6, which I think we also talked about. He gave himself a redemption for all. And then Ott continues, the fathers living before the outbreak of the Pelagian controversy unanimously teach both the generality of God's will of sanctification and the generality of Christ's vicarious atonement. St. Clement of Rome writes, let us behold the blood of Christ and let us realize how precious it is to God, his father, because it shed for our salvation has brought the grace of repentance to the whole world. Uh, and then on Good Friday, Ott writes, the commemorative day of Christ's death of redemption, the church prays for the salvation of all mankind. And then I said this is long, so apologies, but this, this next paragraph then is where he kind of breaks down the sufficiency-efficiency distinction. The universality of Christ's vicarious atonement refers to the objective redemption only. Christ made sufficient atonement for all men without exception. The subject of appropriation of the fruits of redemption is, however, dependent on the fulfillment of certain conditions, on faith and on the observation of the commandments. Accordingly, the schoolmen distinguish between sufficiency and efficacy of the atonement and teach that Christ offered atonement for all mankind, secundum sufficientium, but not secundum efficacium. Excuse my uh, my bad Latin. (laughs) In other words, in acto primo, Christ's atonement is universal. In acto secundo, it is particular. And so that's the sufficiency-efficiency distinction. But the key point here is that God intends the salvation of all men. And I appreciate how Ott always goes back to the church fathers to explore how that was uh, that was held universally in the early church as well. So this is not a new idea. Um, Christ does indeed intend to save all men. And we'll have more to say on, um, on that stuff that Ott was saying about how there's a sort of dependency of the efficiency of the atonement uh, within the soul. And that, that we can save, I think, for the irresistible grace section. Anything we miss, Casey? No, that I, I'm glad you read it, and like you know, like you said, you can never go wrong with quote the church fathers. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, this was just a uh, a surface level treatment, so I'm I'm sure there is. I don't think there's, there's anything we miss in, in the sense of you know stuff we wanted to say tonight, but there's obviously a lot we we could say on this, um, and uh, maybe we will in a future session. But this is a uh, this has been a good discussion, Casey. I'm looking forward to our next discussion next week on irresistible grace. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining me. If you want to reach out to me or Casey, just send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at credocatholic.com. And until next week, God bless you.